Hey, welcome back to Query Diagnosis. As always, I'm your host, Aria. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Hello, I'm Shrita, your co-host. My pronouns are also she, her, hers. Our guest today is Rayarn Monkey. Um, hello, could you please introduce yourself with your pronouns? Hi, my name is Rayan, Rayan Monkey. I go with the pronouns she, her, they. So let's dive right into it. Can you kind of talk about growing up in Dubai and Mumbai and how that kind of influenced your relationship with your identity? Okay, so um, I grew up primarily in Dubai. And uh, in terms of my identity, I would say that it really took me really long to come into my identity because of the fact that I grew up there. And this is mainly because there was no representation. So... There was, I mean, there was nobody who was visibly genderqueer around me as far as I can remember in all of the city. Nobody in my school for sure. And I did know about them uh, through, uh, I mean, I didn't know about the transgender community, but not even with that name. I just knew them with the name Hijra. And that comes from the Indian association with it, which carries a lot of stigma, uh, especially post-colonial times, <clears throat> where the Hijra community is seen uh, as almost criminal. Actually, at one point, they were categorized as a criminal group. So in India, we have this racist history where uh, tribals and other subsects were categorized as criminal groups because that's how they were seen. And at one point, Hijra community was uh, categorized that. So the first time I heard about genderqueer folks was through the lens of the uh, Hijra community, through a very stigmatized uh, viewpoint. And that's the one of the reasons why I have so much internalized transphobia. And it took me so long to get to this point, 15 years, uh, on top of the time when I first realized I have some genderqueer questions to ask myself. I know that you mentioned that identity hijra. Do you mind expanding on what hijra means for our viewers in America? So hijra is actually a very interesting word. In Arabic, hijra has a lot of different uh, meanings. It is one used as the word for the calendar, almost like the calendar is called hijra or hijra, uh, or not pronounced hijra, the O at the end would go silent, so hijra. Uh, and that's how we measure the year. So it would be called the Hijr calendar, which is a lunar calendar. It is also the term used pan-Arabia for anybody who's done a pilgrimage. Again, they will not say Hijra because in the Arabic language, the uh, when a comes at the end, Alif comes at the end, or there's a there's something like a Matra. Uh, when it comes at the end, you don't say it, and it becomes almost like a silent, and it just kind of trails off. So it would again be Hijr. Um, and uh, like Haji is a derivation from that. I mean, Haji is also direct, but Hijr comes from like that kind of connotation of Haji. Haji is another word for pilgrim, which is used more widespread today, uh, especially in Saudi. Uh, but that's where this word comes from, right? But how it is seen as the Hijra community within India originates from the time of the Islamic empire and Islamic, uh, you know, during the uh, post-Prophet Muhammad's death to the end of the Ottoman Empire, so just around the time of World War. During this time is when uh, we see the Hijra community come into uh, the Indian subcontinent or this region, which includes places like Persia, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, all of these would have been uh, included in that region at that time. So they actually see themselves today when we talk about them in contemporary times, I mean, in contemporary context, they do not, there is a difference from how they were viewed earlier. Earlier at that time, the Hijra community actually had a lot of political power, which is the reason why the colonists singled them out. Because uh, even eunuchs for that matter, and in India with different, different names, Kinner community and other names, uh, they were known. And in the Far East also, the eunuchs had a lot of power. 
But when the British came, they saw that as a threat, and that's why they kind of stigmatized it. So at that time, they had political power. Uh, when we talk about it in today's term, they consider themselves, uh, and this can be traced back even back then, they consider themselves to be outside of the binary system. So they do not consider themselves as, again, not all. This is generalization that I'm doing. Um, but a lot of the hijra community will uh, will consider themselves outside the, no, the binary world. And they consider themselves either to be both or beyond uh, gender. Um, and they tend to have... Um, a spirituality that is borrowing from Hinduism and Islam, uh, a lot of Islamic influence in there, but the God is more Hindu, Hinduistic in its uh, aesthetics and so on. And this is because of that kind of acceptance, because if you are someone who can, um, you know, you do not traverse the binary world, you are beyond gender, you can also see beyond these uh, arbitrary differences of like, uh, race and religion and things like that. So the Hijra community actually in the uh, in in the Mughal times and the Islamic Indian um, culture were known for kind of being these centers that would allow conversations to take place across faiths. Um, very often, even today for that matter, the Hijra communities take part in uh, things like Kummela and Ajmer Darga and other places where whenever they are present, you'd see a conversation between the Hindu community, Muslim community, and is beyond uh, religious, it becomes more spiritual and the love for a superpower or a being. At the same time, today in India, they are also seen with a lot of hate because of what I said about the colonial thing. So that thing kind of comes through even today, where they are viewed as either criminals, which of course, like everywhere else in the world, at times the transgender and hijra community have embodied that because of the lack of opportunities. Um, they're also seen as child snatchers and a whole lot of other things that are thrown into the mix. Bollywood and uh, politics does not help for the most part, but especially the representation for the most part is uh, mirroring what used to be in the West, which is either you see... Uh, really uh, comical representations or really transphobic uh, representation. So I did write a paper in college about Hijra and I wish you were there because I, there was like very limited information about, you know, um, kind of history of history, Hijra, um, the community in general. Um, and I think that, you know, it would have been great to have you there. And I noticed that kind of as you were talking about them, you did mention like Islam a little bit. And I know in our pre-interview, uh, you were kind of talking about, you know, coming from a Muslim conservative family. Do you mind speaking to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a family that, much like uh, most of conservative Islamic world sees, uh, saw the entire queer community as an abomination and as some of the signs of the deterioration of civilization. Um, and, you know, this, the same kind of biblical transphobia and queerphobia that exists, that... Uh, in Arabic context. <laughs> Ouch. But that meant that I kind of grew up hating queer people and especially uh, trans people. I realized that I'm actually, like, I didn't realize trans. I didn't realize that I'm trans because obviously I didn't have the language to formulate that. But about the age of, I would say, pre-puberty, so 11, 12, is when I first had this experience, which is basically I was reading an article, and it had this mention about six Iranian trans women who uh, medically transitioned at the time, which is, you know, in today's terms, it's quite interesting to note that Iran actually has this going on since 1976. Um, and when I read that article, it really moved me and shook me. And I remember being like, I don't remember how long, but I remember there being quite a few days where I was just kind of 
stuck with this you know I, I it was just rotating on my mind and i had to figure out what to do with it because the only I, what i can remember is me thinking hey there's a procedure there's a way there's some possible way for me to be a woman uh, and that just seems really interesting i want to think about this and then my mind would be like no you can't that's haram uh if if you do something like that you'd be considered a monster you'd be considered evil so that's not the route you want to do you can't do it it's not even about want you just can't do it by the time you're uh, 20 21 cuz that's generally what i thought would happen in my life you'd get married and you'd have kids by the time you're 30 so rayan don't worry too much about it you'll forget all this ever happened and that's just an example of the kind of uh um uh, awareness i had about the situation or the exposure i had about the situation and now today when i'm standing and uh, trying to do the work and trying to you know just tell my story and i get connected and i work with the queer muslim project so i get connected with a lot of queer muslims through them and it's really interesting to hear how many people have experienced similar things and it's really troubling because of course it's not isolated to islam i, I can use that example because it's my example uh, it's my life and experience but this is the same everywhere right uh, most conservative faiths even sometimes uh, yeah most conservative faiths will kind of embody and kind of instill into the individual this ideas and what that does for people who are actually queer and haven't come into that identity is it teaches them to hate themselves because what they see is even if they haven't come out to themselves and accepted their identity part of them usually knows or senses uh their queerness so to speak so uh what it does is it puts you into a cycle of self hate and then you try and the cycle is because you then try and cope with it so there's various ways you can cope with it and a lot of them are unhealthy uh a lot of them can, some of them are like addiction or um you know depression depre- i mean to cope with the depression there's all of the routes from shopping to food to you know all of these things that you might uh, go down um and so that's that's kind of like the situation that i feel needs to be addressed and that's what i'm trying to talk about to others because we need more awareness about this yeah i mean i think you mentioned like there's obviously so many negative uh coping mechanisms but i think also one of the healthy coping mechanisms you talked about is sort of sharing your journey and developing this network of other queer muslims so can you talk about how like i was going through your instagram and you had this really cool post about like a year of pictures that kind of represented this past year of coming out and going through that journey so how has content creation and sharing your story kind of played a role in this last year of your coming out journey So it's definitely something I want to talk about with a little bit of care because it's a unique situation that I am in not unique of course there are a lot of others but it is one of privilege that is of being of a certain age and also class education and so many other things that I actually was in that position to be able to come out and be visible and not fear things like loss of shelter uh, loss of fi- like financial in like your income etc right so it was it was a position that i found myself in so i'll first acknowledge that uh but it has helped tremendously and that's the thing that i'm a little careful about saying because i don't want to say it in a way that you know everyone thinks that hey yeah if i am visible and i'm going to be on social media it'll help but for me because of this long <laughs> amount of time where so much transphobia it's going to take me still a lot more to actually uh, work through that um i am repeatedly reminded about how much transphobia i still live with and it keeps showing up in my life 
So this the, the ability to be visible, to be out there on social media and to find a community that was affirming me, to be able to find people who are now my friends and, and I can depend on and they support me and help me uh, even work, I was able to find by being somebody who was out there and visible. Um, it's amazing because it was one of the most important things that helped me deal with my own transphobia. Uh, at the end of the day, transphobia is something that ends up happening because of your own ideas. And the only way to change that is to either expose yourself to the same idea that you need more exposure on. So expose yourself to more people from the queer community or listen to other people's ideas and other people's opinions about that topic till the point where your own idea starts to change. And that's kind of what happened with so many people telling me that I look beautiful. I can no longer say that I am a monster or I look ugly, which is where it started at. When the first time I realized that I am trans, one of the first things that entered uh, is, are you going to be one of like one of those ugly people walking on the street with like the beard showing? And that is still in me. And that is just very real because that is what is internalized transphobia. Um, but uh, being visible and getting that kind of affirmation from people, whether it was on my content or even in person telling me, hey, I really related to that piece or oh, that caption you wrote and that story you spoke about how you are still dealing with internalized transphobia. I can highly relate to that. And that made me feel normal. <laughs> this word, right? Because we use the word queer because nobody wants to consider us normal. But that's what made me feel like, hey, there are other people experiencing this. Um, so it's really powerful. I think one of the most powerful things is being able to find somebody else who's feeling or has experienced a similar thing. And uh, that's what it allowed me to do. So as part of like um, research that I'm hoping to do in the next year or so, I'm hoping to work with the queer Muslim community, perhaps in the UK. Um, fingers crossed that I get that opportunity, but it's okay if not. Um, but when I was trying to find research about the queer Muslim community, there's just not really that much out there because first, a lot of people don't acknowledge that you can be queer and Muslim. They think that you have to choose one or the other. But the matter of fact is that there are people who live at that intersection. So they need healthcare too, right? Like, doesn't matter who you are. Everyone needs healthcare, in my opinion. So that's kind of something that I'm coming up against where I'm like, I need to find the queer Muslim community in order to help them. But also because of you know, transphobia, homophobia, it is really hard to get queer Muslims who openly identify and willing to talk about their experiences because especially within healthcare, there are so many chances for there to be miscommunication or feelings of like distrust that arise between you and your healthcare provider. Um, I know that one person that you kind of mentioned was Dr. Trinchin um, in terms of like medical transition. And I was hoping that you could talk more about that. So Dr. Trinchin is uh, this incredibly... I mean, she's one of my biggest role models. And like, I think of her in terms of like celeb, like I completely geek out when she's around me. And that's because, you know, there's celebs who you might look up to. And then there's somebody who actually impacts her life. And she did. She gave me the last leg of my transition. I mean, decision to uh, identify and transition, which was the doability of it, right? She made it very practical by putting it out there, the, the information you need, HRT stuff, uh, how to go about it, getting your gender dysphoria certificate, what is the legal procedures and what is gonna cost you? Uh, what is the cost of HRT um, and, and also uh, surgery? Cause she has chosen to go through surgery. So I myself don't know yet. And it's something everybody has their own journeys. I can talk about those because it is out there on YouTube and it is very public. But because she did that, um, so many of us, including me, found it to be real. And it's so funny because, you know, up until that time, I'd already been exposed to so much content. She was really like the last leg, okay? Like I had my life worth of like 
<laughs> Danish Girl and these other films with like problematic uh, representation, but still speaking to me and me being confused and then uh, transparent on Amazon and then Euphoria and Pose and all of these things really spoke to me and got me to that place. But what Trinita did was make it very real because she was here in this country. Uh, even if she comes from a different background, class, economic, um, and so on, religion, etc. Even then, she made it very real for me. And I really could connect with that. And I found that to be so powerful that I decided that that, that was one of my turning points into deciding to create content. Because I knew that where I was able to connect with her, I know a lot would not be able to connect with her because of these same divides, because of class, race, etc. in this country. And one of the big challenges is the Muslim community, uh, I mean, which I belong to, because I took so long because there was no representation from anyone in the Muslim community, none, right? Like the only representation I found of trans Muslims was after I decided to come out. Because I came out, the algorithm started showing me those, those people maybe, I don't know, but I could not find anyone before. Uh, even internationally, there were very few. Like there were some names I found, but like it's not like they were talking about that. Maybe they were doing different things with their life. They, didn't, they were not content creators and et cetera. So I found that that was something that I wanted to do because of how much it helped me. Uh, but that being said, the work that, uh, going back to Trina and the work that she does, she really tries to create the awareness from a medical point of view, which is seriously lacking in India. Actually, we still have a whole lot of doctors who will uh, try and convince you that this is a phase. Um, that this can be worked out. Only recently have state governments started to ban conversion therapy, but this has still not happened on a, a central level, so not a national level. This has been happening on a state level. So we definitely need more folks like Trinita because she's literally studying to become a doctor and she's just about to finish her uh, MBBS. She's on that internship or whatever they call it, that kind of phase. Um, someone like that because she creates content where she actually records all of these medical things and it makes that easy and accessible for others. You know, I want to actually talk about something that you spoke about a little earlier, uh, Zaria, which is about the inability to find queer folk uh, in uh, Islamic history. So actually, that's that's something that, you know, comes up a lot, especially because when I decided that I'm going to try and create content, first, my objective was only to tell my story. And then when I started to get access to queer Muslim project and the work they are doing, it became kind of interesting to try and find this content in our history because something that I knew from the from 2020 and when I started to go through, so in 2020, what happened was I watched the documentary Disclosure. Uh, it changed my life. It's the reason that I'm finally out to myself. And it's because it does this really good job about detailing how important representation is. For example, the quote that how can you be something that you cannot see uh, comes from someone in that uh, documentary. It's been said several times before, but it's also covered in the documentary. It's really powerful being able to see uh, yourself represented. Um, and I realized that one of the reasons that I found it so hard is because there's no representation in Islam. And that is quite sincerely an issue because when you look at it on a pure logic basis, right, just on stats and logic, the numbers show that we were there always everywhere since the first civilization. There have been evidence. We exist, okay? Queer folk exist. Gender queer folk exist because you have a lot of AMAP skeletons wearing uh, the femme clothes of their times, etc., etc. And so there's no denying that we existed, but we've just been kind of made invisible. And so when I started to look into it, um, obviously I was not the first Muslim person to think about it. And there's a whole bunch of amazing Muslims, uh, queer and non-queer, and also non-Muslims who really dove into this and found a whole lot of queer history within uh, Islamic uh, uh, civilization and Islamic history. 
So uh, there's some work that I'm doing with the Queer Muslim Project, which is working to showcase that. But all of the work we are doing is off of others' work. So there's a lot of pre-existing work. One of the most uh, favorite papers of mine that I found, I'm it's by I'm forgetting her name, but last name is Amir, uh, A M E R. It is um, Arabian lesbian and lesbian like women and. So it's really, there is a whole lot of this work and you can find it. But of course, just the same way that when you look into the Islamic history and you can't find any uh, stories about women, it's hard to find queer, queer people also. Just like the women are made uh, invisible in a lot of conservative societies, in the same way queer people are also made uh, invisible in different ways, but that's our situation right now. So going in and finding it, there is, it just takes a bit more uh, looking. And I think it's really pow powerful to highlight those stories like we are doing a queer Muslim project and these other names uh, have done already because it let people like me who are growing up know that, hey, yeah, this exists. Of course it does. You know, <laughs> of course it did. Of course we existed. I think that's such an important point because I think a lot of transphobic or homophobic narratives hinge on this idea that like this is some new thing that like people are coming up with and by doing that they can like better kind of like differentiate it or like villainize it and I think making the point of no this has always been here and it's just been kind of buried or erased is like a very powerful counter argument to that. You know uh, especially where you all are or you folks are the conversation ends up, you know, uh, concentrating so much on um, medical transition. Okay. And it ends up almost, almost staying there for the most part. Of course, washrooms is another conversation, but this becomes a central conversation. And the interesting thing is, although I do, I am uh, medically transitioning in that I take HRT, I don't know about surgery, but this is just a tiny little, little piece of history where this has been happening. It is like 200 years which is significant in enough time most of our drugs don't have 200 years of experience but this is about 200 years worth of hrt uh, that the human race has done but otherwise for the 10,000 70,000 50,000 whatever our history we have not done it with hrt they have just existed trans people have always existed so it's it's really interesting that the conversation ends up getting stuck there when actually for most of history that was not even a part of the queer, the gender queer uh, experience uh, the ability to uh, transition using, um, you know, synthetic hormones. There is some evidence that the witches knew uh, in Europe some uh, herbs and stuff that could play around with your uh, hormones, as they, as most midwives do know for pregnant women. They have a lot of, like herbs that. What is this one? Like spirulina is a modern one, but like you know these kind of herbs and all that help you with your hormones. So there is some anecdotal evidence of that, but even then, that would not have. Uh, you know, given the kind of transitions we see today. So when you, when we go back to that and we put perspective and give context on the fact that for the longest time we've just existed and people have accepted it. Uh, yes, it's not always been in all of history, it's been accepted, but that's for most things, you know. Uh, when you take any conversation, any topic that we discuss in politics or social uh, relations, they have not been the same purview uh, throughout history. And it's the same with, for the queer community, but they have always existed. That's actually really interesting. And I, I don't think I actually recognize until you literally said it. And sometimes I think it takes an outsider's perspective to kind of make you realize something. Um, and I know that we were kind of talking a little bit about your journey throughout this. And so I wanted to ask you, if you could go back in time and talk to your 15-year-old self, what would you tell them? Yeah, okay. Mm. You know, interestingly, I actually, I thought about this a lot last year and this year. 
and i would tell them i wouldn't really tell them anything i would probably just hug them really tightly and not even say everything's going to be all right the reason being because i really recently realized that i mean i've started to accept and uh frame it that i am not socialized as an afap person would be and a sign female at birth person would be um uh, if i was i would actually not be the woman i am today um i have my sibling as an example very just different people because of how we were socialized right and that's the thing like if if i were to go back in time and tell that rayan anything i don't think i would have this journey and even though this journey has been really painful like very painful and very long and keeps making me think like half the time the sentence is oh my god so much time lost i lost my entire 20s but the only way i have personally as rayan is to go forward and to go forward i have to create these sentences and the sentences i create is everything happened the way it happened because it would have anyways taken me this long to deal with it if i was born in that house so going back to my uh, 15 year old self i just want to hug them and be like not say anything but just be like oh fuck it's going to be really painful <sighs> and that's it you know because I, it's it's like this i have this um, tattoo and it says no regrets okay and it's not that i think that life needs to be lived without regrets it's that that's just how my life worked out and the only way i can move forward is if i do not have any regrets about anything that happened a lot of trans people end up getting stuck in regret and it's it's that's their way of dealing with it and you know that's how we cope with it and that's why we need therapy and i have the privilege of access to therapy and i won't get caught in it and i won't i don't want to be stuck in it so everything that happened happened okay i wish that in the future because of the work that we do and all of the so many trans activists are doing others don't have the same experience as i do i wouldn't wish that on anyone else but yeah that's what i would say i think that was really well articulated we've asked this question at the end of every episode and i don't think anybody ever said like that they would just hug them and i think that's very even the simplicity of that i think is very lovely and i don't know i think that I mean, I honestly I've never answered this question for myself of so like I just like to ask other people and then not think about it, you know what I mean? Um but honestly I hope that my answer is something similar to that because I think that that like you never know if it's going to get like you can't tell your younger self that it's going to get easier if it's not, right? And that it gets better. But I do really like what you said about the regrets and I think I'm going to carry that energy hopefully in my everyday. So I really appreciate that. So at this point we're going to wrap up but it has been very lovely talking with you and we really appreciate you making time also for our listeners we are in different time zones so we had to work around that so shout out to you for making that work with us because I know that's been crazy um but yeah you're doing great things and I'm really looking forward to like everything else that you're doing because it is really so important and also just representation wise you know I really do value you as a person Thank you so much. That's really sweet. This was a lovely chat. I really enjoyed. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please consider making a donation to the Queer Diagnosis Scholarship Fund to connect students with much-needed financial support as a means of guaranteeing their academic success, particularly those students who identify as members or advocates of the LGBTQ+ community. Read the transcript for this episode at queerdiagnosis.com. Queer Diagnosis is Shrita Meripoina, Ekaterina Shimra, Jameson Coleman, and me, Zaria Sheikh. Music is composed and provided by Kara Dugan and Adam Fredette. 
This podcast is supported by listeners like yourself. Our Patreon is patreon.com backslash queerdiagnosis. Rate and subscribe to us wherever you like to listen.